Okay. So last week we looked at New Testament canon part one. Um, this week we move into New Testament canon part two. Um, forgive me if I stop to cough every now and then or clear my throat. I'm still getting over something. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, last week I said that we would look at the qualifications of an apostle because we talked last week about um, apostolicity in the New Testament canon books. Um, we look at the apostles and uh, those who uh, penned books that were not uh, necessarily apostles, uppercase A, but uh, their authority um, was uh, shown by their direct connection to an apostle. So uh, I said last week, I said this week that we would take a look at the qualifications for an apostle and also talk a little bit about uh, Mark, Luke, um, James, and um, their connections with um, apostles as they pen books. All right. <clears throat> so like I just mentioned, towards the end of our study last week, we asked a question which we'll continue to look at this week and try and answer more thoroughly. The question was, what are the two qualifications for being an apostle? First, uh, it was having seen Jesus after his resurrection with one's own eyes, thus being an eyewitness of the resurrection. That was the first qualification of an apostle. Uh, the second qualification was having been specifically commissioned by Christ as his apostle. Okay, <clears throat> so on the first point. Uh, the fact that an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord with his own eyes is shown in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 22, which I'll just read for us. It's a pretty uh, long passage there. So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. <clears throat> so we're considering the first qualification of being apostle, having seen Jesus after his resurrection with one's own eyes thus being an eyewitness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, 12 to 22. <clears throat> then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of them who, had, who, who have accompanied us during all the time, uh, the Lord uh, Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he had spoken, when he had taken, when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us an eyewitness of the resurrection. So I read all that, but towards the end is what I want to emphasize. One of these men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went out, went in and out among us, uh, from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of those men must become with us a witness of the resurrection. And then Paul makes uh, much of the fact that he did meet this qualification, this specific qualification, even though it was in an unusual way. So let me have someone read Acts chapter 9, verse 5 to 6 for us. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Okay, so the context of this verse, these verses is um, Saul's uh, seeing the Lord, uh, seeing the risen Lord who appears to him uh, personally, specifically, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, um, and this is sort of a bit of the, uh, the, the conversation that happens there. And then Acts 26, 15 to 18, if someone would mind reading this, sort of a parallel passage. <clears throat> Okay, thank you, Will. And we also see this in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. <clears throat> oh, sorry, I didn't have you read the whole thing. Uh, 17 and 18, of course. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan for God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right. And then 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says, am I not free? Uh, sort of defending his uh, being apostle um, and his authority and his um, being apostle. Uh, Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord, uh, seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Um, again, he's defending his um, apostleship. Uh, he also references this in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 7 to 9. He says, then he appeared to James, speaking of Jesus, um, after his resurrection. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So these verses combine to show us that unless someone has seen Jesus after the resurrection with his own eyes, he could not be an apostle, uppercase A, apostle, okay? That really uh, cuts at a lot of what we see in certain denominations where we hear of apostles who are um, doing uh, miracles and signs and wonders. Um, it's the, the Bible's clear what those qualifications were for an apostle. Um, that's a side note. Second qualification that I mentioned, having been specifically commissioned by Christ as his apostle. So the second qualification is also seen in several verses. Um, first, <clears throat> though the term apostle is not common in the Gospels, the 12 disciples are called 
apostles specifically in a context where Jesus is commissioning them, sending them out to preach in his name. Um, Let me have someone read these verses for us. Uh, Matthew 10, 1 to 7. So in choosing, so we have a list here of um, the apostles, and specifically the names of the 12 apostles are these, so it's a clear um, list of apostles. And even in choosing another apostle to replace Judas, which we just read, um, had to be fulfilled in his betraying the Lord Jesus. In betraying Judas, the 11 apostles did not take the responsibility on themselves. They prayed and asked the ascended Christ to make that appointment. <clears throat> Acts 1, 24 to 26, if someone wouldn't mind reading this for us. <clears throat> and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, thank you. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, the casting of lots may sound strange to us today. You know, you say, well, they just threw some dice, and wherever it landed, it landed. (laughs) But in antiquity at this time, um, that was a a means uh, through which um, God determined, he gave them and determined that he would do certain works through these things, and it was um, trustworthy in his wisdom yeah 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 (laughs) I mean yeah so it's it's strange to us but it was very common then um okay so uh continuing this so we're trying to again we're talking about the two qualifications of an apostle having seen the risen lord with one's own one's own eyes and having been commissioned by the lord Um, we see that in paul and we see that in matthias So were there um, others who were commissioned by Christ that we don't read about today, um, read about specifically their commissioning? Um, Well, I'm going to read Acts 14, um, 8 to 14, and and I think the uh, answer to that, well, is is possibly. We're we're not, we're speaking of those commissioned um, as an apostles and thinking about uh, whether we see God actually... um, commissioning them uh, in this same way. So Acts 14, 8 to 14 says this. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, And uh, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, who, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Um, but when the apostles uh, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So I read a little bit further. But uh, the question is, were uh, there others who were commissioned um, by Christ that we don't read about? Now, uh, not, not to say that I don't want to go as, as far as to say that there are um, other uh, uppercase apostles, and we'll sort of talk about this a little bit, that were given the same authority as the apostles to uh, pin scripture that we don't uh, know about. But there, there seems to be areas where there are um, others called apostles. And I was trying to sort of work this out as I worked through this study. You have the 12 the apostles, uppercase A, you have others who are called apostles and seem to have been given some authority, which we'll talk about James and Mark in a sec. And then you have just apostles, uh, uh, disciples, followers of, of Christ in general. Um, so I'm not sure how scholars would make those uh, distinctions, but I'm going to work through at least James and Mark, and we'll see that they, they were called apostles in some areas. Although the, the, the structure in the Greek makes it difficult to know if they were designated as, and um, in, in what category they were designated as apostles. So let's just work through some of these verses and see what it's saying here. Okay, so I talked about James last week, but again, um, who was James, uh, the writer of the epistle? Well, he was the half-brother of Jesus and Jude. Uh, he seems to be called an apostle in Galatians 1.9. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, but we can't uh, be definitive because of the way the Greek is structured um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 7, which says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So there seems to be a distinction here between uh, the apostles um, and the 12, and then all these other uh, disciples. So in thinking about James and his, and his authority, it's sort of hard to... Um, distinguish between Galatians 1.9, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and then 1 Corinthians 15.3-17. So I'm still even working through that in the Greek structure to see sort of what's being said there specifically about James. Um, but he definitely seems to have some place of authority and influence. And you see this, and you can maybe make this note in your notes, we see this in Acts 12, 17, Acts 15, 13, Acts 21, 18, and Galatians 2, 9 to 12. <clears throat> okay, so that on 
James. What about Mark? Who was Mark? So we're going to sort of go from uh, looking at scripture specifically to more of a uh, historical um, and uh, academic evidence for some of this stuff. So who was Mark? Um, widespread evidence from the early church fathers confirms that Peter passed on reports of his words and deeds of Jesus to his attendant and writer, John Mark. So it's significant to read of Mark in a statement by Papias, who was the bishop of Heriopolis around AD 120. Um, so Papias's writings were preserved by Eusebius of Caesarea, which was um, lived from around 260 to 340. Um, by the way, Eusebius is considered by many scholars as the father of church history. In other words, he was very influential in his records of church history, and we learn a lot through his writings. So um, Eusebius having recorded or having record of Papias' writings, Papias says this. Uh, Papias says that he received oral tradition from John the Elder and Apostle. So actually, the life of Papias, the bishop of Heriopolis, and the life of some of the apostles would have overlapped. So it's very interesting to read his writings. Anyway, uh, he passes on the following regarding Mark. He says, one, he, Mark, was the writer for Peter. Two, he says, he wrote down accurately as much as he could remember of Peter's words, um, considering um, John uh, 14, 26, which he adapted to the needs of the moment. Uh, three, Papia says that he, Mark, was not an eyewitness of Jesus, nor a disciple, and four, it was his desire not to omit or misrepresent anything. So those are the words of Papias speaking of Mark. And again, uh, one of the strongest evidences in church history for Mark and his connection with Peter comes from Papias, who says, Mark, having been, become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took special care, not to omit anything that he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Again, these are the writings of Papias, whose life would have overlapped some of the apostles. And uh, his words are not authoritative, they're not divine, but they are helpful in church history. Um, Papias concluded that the Gospel of Mark gains its apostolic um, authority and reliability and reliable character because of its origins coming from Peter. Okay? And um, I mentioned Luke last week, but I'll just mention this because I, I came across this in my study and I thought it may be helpful. Um, the authorship of Luke is attested to by Origen, Eusebius, Athanasius, Gregory, uh, Nazianzi, and Jerome, if I said Nazianzi right. Um, internal evidence also suggests Luke as the author of Luke and Acts. One, the author of Luke and Acts are one and the same. You see that in Luke 1, 1 to 4, and Acts 1, 1 to 3. And the use of Theophilus, um, 
mentioned in the former account in those two areas. The author of Luke Acts joined Paul as demonstrated by the use of the first person plural, we, which you see in Acts 16 and 20. Three, Luke is named by and accompanied Paul on his, on his second and third missionary journey and was with him during his first imprisonment. You see that in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. Um, in his second imprisonment, uh, 2 Timothy 4.11. So these three taken together point to Luke as the author of both the third gospel and the book of Acts. That's just a little bonus in there. Okay, um, we still got a bit to cover. So um, let's transition to the formation of the New Testament canon. Any questions? I'll take a couple questions before we transition to the formation of the New Testament canon. And so all of this is a continuation of last week. I touched on all of these things last week, but this is just a continuation. Esther? Back to the Apostle thing, I just your first question. So, like, there were 13 apostles, right? Yes. Like, how many apostles? 12, and then Paul as one untimely born, he says. Around the, around the throne. I don't know. I, I would need to look at that in Revelation. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Any other questions, thoughts? Will? The twelfth disciple. Um, the Lord determined that there would be 12. <laughs> I don't really have another, another answer apart from that, a technical answer for why there had to be 12. I don't know. All right. <clears throat> so moving on to the formation of the New Testament canon. Okay, so I talked about Eusebius, uh, Eusebius of Heriopolis. He's actually considered the first to write a comprehensive history of the early church. Um, Eusebius was early, uh, in the early fourth century, compiles a list, and he distinguishes four classes for the New Testament books, which you have on your handouts in front of you. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce these right. <laughs> I was practicing last night, but I butchered it this morning, so we'll see what happens. Uh, so the first class is um, homo, homo legumenia. I don't know if that's right or not, but I actually have, like, I went to, like, Wikipedia, and, like, you know how it breaks it out for you, how to pronounce it, and it's still not helpful. Um, homo Lugo uh, Minu, I don't know. Um, so that's the first class. So that class on your sheets, the one there, is universally agreed upon by, fourth, by the 4th century church, 22 out of the 27 New Testament books. He includes the book of Revelation, but says it is a questionable book. Um, he is inconsistent here because in other writings it seems that he does see Revelation as um, agreed upon, as, a, as authoritative. Um, but he also mentions uh, Hebrews and how some accepted and some have rejected. So the context here is early 4th century, Eusebius compiles a list of books for us. Okay? And he has classes for those books that he has laid out. So the second was anti-legomena. Anti and these are books about which there is some debate, but for the most part are accepted. James, Jude, 1st and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, Hebrews, and Revelation. 
The fact that Hebrews was an unknown author led to its doubt. So he goes from books that were um, universally agreed upon, books that we were, people were skeptical about, spurious books, books that were read in some churches to heretical books. Uh, so those spurious books, class three, uh, we were read in some of the churches, most were doubtful of their canonicity. Um, the epistle of Barnabas, the epistle of Clement of Rome, to the Corinthians, the shepherd of uh, Hermas, um, the Didache, and the apocalypse of Peter, amongst others. Uh, they were pious, useful, but not canonical. Again, context for century, early fourth century. Fourth class was heretical books. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John. Um, and it's clear and obvious that these do not belong. And we'll read some of those later because the stories are fanciful and they just butt up against um, what we see laid out in scripture for the deity of Christ and the consistency of the character of God and just the accounts of the Gospels. Okay, um, In AD 367, um, the 39th Paschal or Easter letter of Athanasius contained an exact list of the 27 New Testament books we have today. So this list was affirmed at the Synod of Hippo in 393 AD. So um, it wasn't, it didn't take long for uh, the books that we have, New Testament books, to be recognized as canon. Again, not made canon, but recognized as canon. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> so that leads to the natural question. Uh, is the New Testament canon closed, or should we expect more? The opening verses of Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, puts this in a proper historical context. So let's look at Hebrews 1. I think it's very important that we try and answer this uh, biblically first. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. <clears throat> Okay, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He has spoken to us by the, spoken to our fathers by the prophets, long ago, many times, in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So that is very, very important. I'm going to, um, so there seems to be here this contrast between the former speaking of old by the prophets and the recent speaking in these last days, which suggests that God's speech to us in his son is the culmination and the conclusion of his speaking to mankind and is his greatest and final revelation. Okay, um, I'm going to read a bit from uh, Richard D. Phillips and his um, expository um, walking through Hebrews. And um, it's about a page and a half. It's uh, sort of lengthy, but very good and necessary, I think. So um, Richard D. Phillips says this in his book, the Ex An Exposition of Hebrews, the final revelation in God's Son. 
He says, these opening verses tell us not merely that God has spoken, but that his final and definitive revelation is in and through his son, Jesus Christ. The writer makes this point through three contrasts in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. First, there is the win of revelation, long ago in contrast to in these last days. Second, there is the how of revelation, namely at many times and in many ways by the prophets versus by his son. The author's point, which is the burden of the entire book of Hebrews, is to show the superiority of Christianity to the old covenant religion. He wastes no time getting to this point, arguing the supremacy of Christ over the prophets. This, this supremacy does not in any way malign the Old Testament faith. Unlike pagan religions, it is a legitimate revelation of a true faith. In the Old Testament, God spoke, and it was God-given revelation and religion. Nonetheless, Christ is superior, and with his coming, there is no, there was now no excuse for reverting back to Judaism. So he's sort of pulling it out and getting a big picture here to make a point as we look at Hebrews. The author describes former revelation as coming at many times and, and in many ways. His point is not merely the diversity of revelation in the Old Testament, but its fragmentary, incomplete, and gradual character progressive revelation. Take any book of the Old Testament, perhaps Genesis with, with its rich scenes of creation, fall, and redemption, or Esther with her courageous faith in an unseen God, or Psalms with its heart-lifting poetry. You will, you will read, and you will read true divine revelation, even necessary revelation, but each book is fragmentary and again incomplete. The Old Testament is unfulfilled. It expectantly longs for the answer that comes in Jesus Christ. By contrast, God's revelation in Christ is not partial or incomplete. This is why the Christian era is described as in these last days. The point is not that Jesus is about to come back at any time, as many take this to mean, though other New Testament passages tell us to have this perspective. But the point is that this is the age of fulfillment when God's revelation has been made complete. This is what makes the win of Christian revelation so much better. Calvin comments, it was not a part of the word that Christ brought, but the last closing word. Another reason for the superiority of the Christian faith is that contrasts in the channel of its revelation. That is the how. In the Old Testament, God spoke by the prophets. But in the new, he speaks by his own son. One could hardly find a greater group of spiritual giants than the prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these were outstanding bearers of divine truth. Yet how they pale compared to the very son of God come to earth. As Jesus put it, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all, John 3.31. The revelation in Christ then given not merely to the forefathers, but preserved for us in scripture, is superior to that given formally through the prophets. Martin Luther concludes, if the word of the prophets is accepted, how much more ought we to seize the gospel of Christ? Since it is not a prophet speaking to us, but the Lord of the prophets, not a servant, but a son, not an angel, but God.
very helpful, I think, as we look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Um, it is the final revelation. So again, he gives a big answer for the New Testament canon uh, enclosed and us having the final word. So the question we ask is, where do we learn about this revelation through Christ? The answer is that the New Testament writings contain the full authoritative and sufficient interpretation of Christ's words and deeds and interpret them with absolute divine authority. The apostles and their, clo and their, cl <clears throat> and their close companions report that they have finished their writings. There is no more to be added with the same absolute divine authority. Therefore, once the writings of the New Testament apostles are authorized, and, and, their, and their authorized companions are complete, we have in written form the final record of, any, of everything that God wants us to know about life, death, the resurrection of Christ, and its meaning for us um, as believers in the world today. Uh, since this is God's greatest revelation to mankind, uh, no more is to be expected once this is complete. The canon is now closed. There are some um, pastors who may disagree with that, that's, that's fine. Um, but again, I, I think uh, uh, this is, it's good to walk through and give thought to and um, see why. Um, and so I'm gonna continue in this thought and try and answer how can we be sure. <clears throat> this, is, this can be answered in three ways. First, um, if we are asking upon what we should base our confidence, our answer must ultimately be that our confidence is based on the authority and faithfulness of God. We know that God loves his people and, is supremely, uh, and it's supremely important that God has spoken to his people and he has spoken his own words for their life and godliness. They are more precious, his words are, more important to us than anything else in the world. We know that God our Father is in control of all things. Secondly, we can be sure because of the historical data that we have. Of those writings, um, which we mentioned earlier, that some in the early church wanted to include in the canon, it is safe to say that there are none that present-day evangelical or Protestants would want to include because they're contrary to the rest of scripture. So you hear people saying, well, what about these other um, first century books that were sort of there, but the church didn't recognize them? Um, shouldn't they have been added? Why are we rejecting them? Is there more with something left out? Um, no. <clears throat> For instance, I'm gonna just talk about some of these um, first century writings. Uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, you'll hear about. Uh, it actually teaches the necessity of penance and the possibility of the forgiveness of sins at least once after baptism. So the author seems to identify the Holy Spirit also with the Son of God before the Incarnation and to hold that the Trinity came into existence only after the humanity of Christ had been taken up into heaven. That may not sound problematic, but it is very problematic. Um, the Gospel of Thomas, which for a short time was held by some to, be, some to belong to the canon, ends with the following statement. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Ha, huh. it's 
problematic. I see y'all women looking at me like, women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, this is problematic. It's not difficult to see. Um, now, the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by <laughs> Thomas. Um, it was, uh, actually, we, we don't know who it was written by, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for heretical books to attribute themselves to an apostle to sort of gain leverage or, or gain authority. The third reason we can be sure um, that uh, the canon has ceased and these early writings are not to be added is the indwelling testimony of the Holy Spirit. As we read scripture, the Holy Spirit causes us to see that God's word is what it actually is, God's word. Um, that the books we have in scripture are all that God and his word, um, all that God has given to us in his word. It has been the testimony of Christians throughout the ages uh, that as they read the books of the Bible, the words of scripture speak to their hearts as no other books do. Day after day, year after year, Christians find that the words of the Bible are indeed the words of God working in them with authority, with power, and with persuasiveness that no other writings possess. It is at work in you, 1 Thessalonians 2 says. So truly, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Hebrews 4.12. No other book can do that. It is a miraculous book. Um, I know that sounds uh, like circular uh, reasoning. You're appealing to your own book to say that your book is authoritative. <laughs> You're just, how can that be a, a good argument? And I like the way um, Michael Kruger puts it. He, he, he says that in order for us to appeal to a higher authority to say that the book, say that the Bible is the highest authority means that that other authority is a higher authority than the Bible is. In other words, um, there, we can't appeal to something if we're saying that this book has the highest authority. It's God's spoken word. God has the high, higher authority. We can't appeal to something outside of what we deem as the highest authority to say, for that thing to say whether this has the highest authority. Does that make sense? Um, he also gives this example of someone sort of, like if I put a target on uh, the wall or like one of those ABC things where I'm testing my eyes and I put it up and I want to see if my eyesight is legit, if it is what it ought to be. He says, first I'm trusting my eyesight as I walk over, put it on the wall and walk back to trust that I'm gauging that rightly. Um, well, then what do you say? Well, what about something, what about getting a friend and having a friend put it up for you to gauge whether your eyes are right? Then I have to assume that my friend eyes, his eyes are right as he puts it up and tries to gauge so that I can test whether my eyesight is right. Um, I thought that was a helpful and, and good example. Um, we cannot appeal to something outside of the word to determine whether the word itself is authoritative. This does not mean that we don't have uh, grounded historical data which attest to the word. Um, it's just making a point that the word is the final authority. And 
I like the way it's, he put it. We cannot appeal to something outside of it to determine whether that's true or not. Okay, 10 minutes. I need to hurry up. Um, John Calvin says about scripture, this, uh, scripture bears its own authentication. Uh, Let this point therefore stand, and those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon the scripture, and the scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. Um, In the certainty it deserves with us, it sustains by the testimony of the Spirit. For even if it wins reverence for itself by its own majesty, it seriously affects us only when it is sealed up upon our hearts through the Spirit. Therefore, um, illumined by his power, we believe neither by our own or by anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God. But above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty that it is um, flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. Okay, sort of coming to a closing here. I know this is a lot, but bear with me. So again, we ask, can anything be added to the Bible today? Getting back to that point. We've seen that the canon was closed in the first century, and that since then, God has not revealed anything on the level of Holy Scripture. The Westminster Confession says, um, in the Westminster, actually in this um, paragraph here, in chapter one of the Holy Scriptures, um, chapter one, paragraph six, it's pretty much identical to the, Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689, which our church holds to. But the Westminster Confession says here, um, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture into which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. So according to this statement, which sums up the Protestant view of Scripture, nothing is to be added or subtracted from the Bible. Uh, The revelation from God to man has been completed. So there is no direct word in the Bible uh, that stops uh, or says that God isn't revealing himself necessarily. Um, So God reveals himself in creation. He reveals himself in other ways. But there's a distinction between that. And as I talked about last week, the word of God spoken verbally, written down, and preserved, which we have in canon. Um, Some have appealed to uh, the book of Revelation to make this point. Um, It says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 22, uh, 18 to 19. But this, uh, contextually, is speaking of the book of Revelation. It is not a command against adding any other book to scripture. If taken literally, then we could only have as scripture the book of Revelation. For you stone me, let me continue. Yet there is a principle that is clearly taught. No one is to add or take away from the revealed word of God. And I think that's seen more clearly in Jude. Uh, Jude says this, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So this verse teaches that a body of truth from God has been delivered to man and that this faith has been wholly delivered. This seems to show us that no further revelation from God is necessary. 
God has told us in Scripture everything that we need to know about who he is, who we are, and those things necessary for life and godliness. The the Bible says clearly that the faith has been completely revealed. Therefore, if any new revelation were to come from God, it would be consistent with the past revelation. You ask, if manuscripts are found, and those manuscripts uh, are manuscripts of John or Paul or whatever, these writings would be consistent with past revelation. Dan Wallace says, um, the issue is not that we have um, 98% of scripture, the issue is that we have 102% of scripture. What we find only further verifies and authenticates what we have. Um, They are still finding manuscripts. Dan Wallace and his ministry does tremendous work in um, going and um, um, uh, linking up with um, archaeologists and others, getting his hands on manuscripts, digitizing manuscripts for us to have. Uh, He does great work, but um, again, a great point. We don't have 98%. We have 102%. Uh, We're not lacking, we have an overwhelming and embarrassing amount of evidence for scripture. So even if a work met all the above criteria, it it would not necessarily be the word of God. While theoretically it is possible that God could add something to what he has previously revealed, it is highly unlikely that that would be the case. Again, why? The faith has already been delivered to mankind. Any further word from God to man is not necessary. The the canon of scripture is complete. So, after considering the subject of the canon of scripture, we can make the following conclusions. Six, one, the term canon refers to the authoritative books of scripture. Two, God is the one who decided which books should be placed in the Bible. The church didn't make canon canon, they recognize what was divinely authoritative as canon. Three, we know the correct books are in the Bible because of the testimony of Jesus and the apostles. Four, the Apocrypha and books considered um, inspired by the Roman Catholic Church do not give evidence for inspiration. Five, recent books that have claimed divine inspiration have proven themselves to be frauds. Uh, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, Polar Great Price, etc. Six, the scripture is complete. Nothing should be added or subtracted from it. In conclusion, conclusion. Are there any books in our present canon that should not be there? No. We can rest in God who was faithful to preserve his word and his greatest revelation of himself and his world. Our confidence is repeatedly confirmed both by historical investigation and by the Holy Spirit in enabling us to hear God's voice in a unique way as we read the very word of God in the 66 books in our present canon of scripture. Okay, that will conclude our lesson, our three-week lesson on the canon. (laughs) Again, this was the continuation of last week. First week we dealt with uh, canon Old Testament, second week canon New Testament, part one, this week canon New Testament, part two. And again, I know that was a lot of information, but uh, thank you for um, bearing with me. Okay, a couple of questions before we 